This morning we're going to read from verse 5 to verse 10. Verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in the same way, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and your word is holy. And this morning, the gathering of saints is holy. And as we gather, Lord, and turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would teach us and instruct us and show us what it is that you want us to understand from this passage. Lord, help us to think your thoughts and not hold on to what we can naturally understand. Thank you that those who are born again do, in fact, know your thoughts. Help us to remember the things that we know. Lord, instruct us this morning, and may your name be magnified. May we leave here in wonder and awe at who you are, because you are amazing. You are wonderful, and you are worthy of all of our praise. And we don't sing and praise you, Lord, out of just mere tradition, or because it's just something we do, but we praise you because you are worthy. Remind us again, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue on in our series of the book of Jude, the series entitled Counterfeit Grace and the Wrath of God. Now, Jude, as we've said before, was one of the physical brothers of Jesus, one that was actually born of Joseph and Mary. And Jude wrote this letter the physical brother of Jesus, wrote this letter to all Christians. You'll notice that the letter is not addressed to a particular church or a particular gathering in a particular city, but it's written to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So that would be for you and for me as well. This letter is what we would call a general letter, and it's relevant for all times. What Jude is dealing with here is something that we'll always have to deal with. Jude is writing to sound the alarm. He's uh, been alerted to a problem. 
and he sounds the alarm and he writes this letter to call Christians to arms, to fight, which is the actual word in the Greek. So it's a letter that is calling all Christians to fight. And what are they to fight? And what are they to fight for? How are they to fight? As we've said before, he's not calling them to grab their shotguns and to grab their pitchforks and to grab their torches and to go and kill somebody, okay? Because that's not how Christ calls us to deal with problems and to deal with heretics, not by the use of physical violence. But we're to fight for the faith. This is a fight that has to do with truth. This is a battle between truth and lies. And the truth is being threatened and the truth is at stake the truth of the faith that's once delivered to all the saints. And this is what we're to contend for and to fight the good fight of faith that the Apostle Paul said that he fought. And if you look at the Apostle Paul's life after he became a Christian, he wasn't physically fighting anyone, but he described his entire life as a combat. His whole life, he was like a man dressed in armor, carrying a weapon, slaying uh, enemies. And yet, you never see him physically fighting anyone. What you do, do see him, however, his entire life as a Christian is preaching and reasoning with people and arguing with people and debating with people and, and preaching the truth and holding forth the truth and defending the truth against lies and false teachers. This is what the Apostle Paul's life was, and it was a fight. And so we are also called. Because the faith is entrusted to us. God, in his, what might seem like crazy wisdom, has entrusted the truth to his church. The scripture says that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. It's an amazing thing that God has given it to us to hold forth the word of life and to protect it in this earth. That's as we were singing about, uh, our ancient foe seeks to do us woe and, and Satan and all of his host is against the truth. And yet we are called to contend for it. Now, if God was not with us, as Martin Luther was singing, and he was a man who was eminently qualified to sing a song like that, right? He was like Paul, fighting for the truth in his age, in his day. Uh, and Martin Luther said, if it was our own strength in which we confided in, um, we could not stand. But God entrusted to us because he is with us, and he has given us his spirit. We'll see that in just a moment. The doctrine, the body of doctrine that has to do with the person of Christ is the faith that we defend. And it's this faith that is being denied, Jude tells us, by certain men who have crept in unnoticed. And, and they're irreverent men, they're condemned men, and specifically, Jude tells us what they're doing. In verse 4, he says, they're irreverent persons who turn the grace of our God into lawlessness or insolence or wantonness, the Greek word is aselgeia, and by doing that, they're denying the Lord Jesus. They're denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus. Now, it's not an explicit denial of Christ. They're not marching into the church and saying, hey, everybody, we deny Jesus Christ. Because then everyone would be alerted to the problem. But Jude is sounding the alarm and he's saying there's certain guys who have crept in unnoticed. They seem like they're Christians. They don't seem like they're denying Christ at all. But in fact, what they're doing is denying Christ. And they're denying it by turning the grace of God into eselgeia. This is what they're doing. And this is why they're condemned. 
because of what they're doing. And we talked about this last week. What, what these men are doing is they certainly are claiming to believe in the grace of God. They're, they're not denying it explicitly that we believe in grace. They're not saying, no, we don't believe in grace. But what, they're, what they're doing is they're exchanging the true grace of God for something that isn't grace at all, and they're calling it grace. And that's lawlessness and wantonness. And they're saying that God is not a God of grace. God is a God of aselgeir, wanton, lawless insolence. Because what God does is he forgives. He just forgives. Because God is kind. And it's not through the death of Christ that God forgives. He forgives because he's merciful. He forgives because he's not wrathful. He forgives because he's a good God. And that's what Jesus came to show us. Jesus came to show us that God isn't a vengeful God. God is a kind and compassionate God who eats with sinners. You know, right? That's what Jesus did. He, he ate with sinners. And he said, God is a kind God. He just accepts sinners because he's good. Sounds good. Sounds right almost. Sounds like there's some truth there. And they're calling that the grace of God. But Jude says, beware, because this is a denial of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not grace at all. This is saying that God is lawless. This is saying that God is insolent. That God is wanton. That God just does whatever he wants and he has no respect for right and wrong. No respect for justice. Justice is not on these men's radar. It's something that's primitive and barbaric and we can move on from that. Does that sound familiar? Kind of sounds like the 21st century, doesn't it? You know, there's a huge shift in our understanding today in the 21st century regarding justice. And the very thought of retribution today is uh, considered craziness. You ever heard of that? we We shouldn't punish criminals, right? We should not punish criminals. We should heal them because they're sick. And so we don't believe in retribution anymore. We believe in rehabilitation. That's what prisons are for. We should do away with capital punishment. We do away with the whole concept of punishment. Because that idea of retribution is primitive and barbaric. And really, people are just sick and they need a friend. And hey, that's what God is all about. This is kind of what these men are saying. Jude is in a unique position to write this, not only because Jude knows the other apostles very well, he lived in their day, he obviously rubbed shoulders with all the apostles of Jesus, but because he was the Lord's brother. And Jude could say, hold on a second, I know my brother, okay? I remember when we were little and every time we would do something naughty, Jesus would tell us, you know God's going to judge that, right? (laughs) It's like always Jesus would say that all the time. (laughs) Well, we don't know that, but maybe. But the point is is that the man who is writing this very vehement, passionate denunciation of these false teachers and saying that they're condemned, the man, the man that wrote this letter is a man who is intimately acquainted with Jesus. This letter came from one who was in close proximity with Jesus. And one might think, well, no one who was around Jesus and really knew Jesus would write a letter like this. No. Right? When people might say that. I, I think I said last week that one of, the, one of the most common things I hear on campus is, Jesus never told anyone they were wrong. You know? Like, well, you, you're not a Christian. You're, Jesus never made anyone upset. People say this. But 
look at this letter that Jude wrote, passionately uh, calling out these false teachers, and he's going to say some really harsh things about them later on in the letter. This came from the brother of Jesus, a man that knew Jesus very well. Uh, Jesus didn't begin his ministry until he was 30 years old. Jude knew Jesus for uh, 30 years merely as just a family member, family reunions, dinner. He would have picked up Jesus' thoughts on life and God during that time. And certainly he wasn't uh, wholly separated from him during the three years that he was ministering. We see even in the Gospels, Jesus would go home and talk with his brothers. His brother says, why don't you go up to the feast and make yourself known? They, they were around Jesus. But now that Jude believes in Christ, he understands Jesus' message. He understands who his brother really is. In the first message, we talked about how he's really severed his fleshly ties with Jesus and he's taken his place with all the other saints and he's proclaimed himself to be the bondservant of his own brother, the Messiah. And Jude is qualified to say, no, these false teachers don't have my brother right at all. The problem in Jude's day is really the same problem that we're facing today. In fact, it's probably worse today than it has ever been. There are major theological movements and trends today, uh, in our day, that are going rapidly this direction that these false teachers are going. I'd like to quote, uh, read a quote from um, who I think is one of the greatest theologians of all time, James Denny. And Denny uh, wrote this about these, this theological trend. And he's going to summarize it here, what the theological trend is. This is from Denny's book, The Death of Christ. After Denny has been explaining that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, he then says this, There is really only one objection which can be made to what he was saying about Jesus giving his life a ransom for many. There's really only one objection can be made, and it is made unceasingly. See, Denny was up on all the theological issues of his day, and he says, this is an unceasing objection to what I'm saying. It is that it is inconsistent, this is the objection, it is inconsistent with what is elsewhere, Jesus' unmistakable teaching. The idea that Jesus gave his life a ransom for many, understood that he died for our sins and he satisfied the justice of God, the objection is that's inconsistent with what has elsewhere been Jesus' unmistakable teaching. The very burden of Jesus' message, we are told, is that God forgives unconditionally out of his pure fatherly love. This love reaches of itself deeper far than sin and bestows freely and joyfully on the penitent. It is nothing less than a direct contradiction of this gospel of the free love of God when we make forgiveness dependent upon a sacrificial that is a propitiatory virtue in the death of Christ. Notice that claim? The objectors are saying, you're contradicting the gospel of God's free love and grace and forgiveness when you say that his forgiveness is dependent upon a sacrificial propitiatory death of Christ. It misrepresents God's character and in so doing destroys the gospel. We cannot, it is argued, on the strength of one word and that a dubious word run counter to the sense and the spirit of our Lord's teaching as a whole. 
Okay, that is a major, major um, theological trend today. Obviously, in Denny's day, it was big. It's huge today. The thought that God sent Christ to die for your sins, to make a propitiation for your sins, so that he could forgive you. Now, if you ever get outside of your, your tightly knit Christian circles where that's an accepted belief, you're going to find that most people, even those who profess to be Christians, think, that's barbaric. And that's really destroying, that's making God like one of those old Greek gods who require sacrifice to be nice. You Christians are way in the past. Wake up and realize that God is a God of love. He doesn't require a bloody sacrifice to accept you. Huge today, creeping in in Jude's day. I'll read you a quote by Thomas Chubb. He... Um, was an Enlightenment writer in England. and he, he was one of those who rejected the idea of propitiation. Here's what he said. God's disposition to show mercy arises wholly from his own innate goodness or mercifulness and not from anything external to him, whether it be the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ or otherwise. Now this sounds attractive and there is an element of truth to this. But, if what they're saying is true, that God forgives you apart from the death of Christ, the death of Christ is not a sacrifice for your sins that is any way uh, changing God or making God, uh, enabling God to forgive you. If that's true, we can set aside the death of Christ as dispensable and unnecessary. And in fact, we must do that. We must set, the, set aside the death of Christ because if we say the death of Christ is necessary for your forgiveness, well, according to them, we're actually destroying the gospel and the knowledge of God. This is pretty extreme one way or the other, isn't it? Because what do we say? We say, hold on, if you set aside the death of Christ, then you're destroying the gospel and the knowledge of God. Well, who's right here? There's a misunderstanding because it is true and we wholeheartedly agree that Christ taught us that forgiveness is free and that forgiveness and mercy comes from God's nature and the cross does not change the nature of God, right? And Christ came to show us the Father and he showed us that God is a good God and God is a loving God and God is a merciful God and the cross doesn't suddenly make God merciful, right? The cross doesn't suddenly make God forgiving as if he wasn't forgiving before and then all of a sudden he is. But what, is being fa- what, is, what they are failing to see, and this is the most important thing that Jude is going to draw our attention to, is that God is, as well as a loving God, God is a just God. Retribution, brothers and sisters, is a real thing. And it doesn't matter if the entire world says, retribution sounds kind of barbaric to me and really we should drop the whole concept of justice and we should just pick up the concept of rehabilitation. Uh, Jesus Christ stands against that. Jude stands against that. The apostles stand against that and say, no, God is a just God who shows vengeance upon the ungodly and sinners. True or false? Do we believe that as Christians? I mean, we are going against the tide if we believe that. That's a really uh, unpopular thing to believe. God is a just God who shows vengeance and retribution upon sinners. Wow. Way to take a step 2,000 years back in time. 
Or are we rather seeing reality as it exists in the 21st century and not being deceived by the fair-sounding words of the devil and his evil ideas about God? God hates sin. God is determined to avenge sin. God is determined to do that. God doesn't see sin and say, shoot, now I have to deal with it. Because like I said, I would. God himself is determined, desirous to avenge sin. It's part of his just nature to do that. Well, the problem is we judge uh, God by our own behavior. And we say, well, I don't require sacrifice in order to forgive somebody, right? So my family member sins against me, my friends sins against me. I don't say, come bring me a sacrifice. I mean, maybe actually some of us require some sort of atonement in order to forgive, right? We wait until they say they're sorry, otherwise we're not moving off of, our, off of us being upset, right? How many of you know that? Sometimes you don't forgive until the person says they're sorry. That's a form of requiring atonement and it's wrong. You should forgive even if they don't say they're sorry. See, but even ourselves in the nature of God have a sense of justice. The problem is we are not our brother's judges, right? We are not our brother's judge. And we ourselves are sinners who, if, if we, if we uh, understand the position that we're in, we ought to always forgive without requiring, uh, without playing judge. But God is not like us. God is not a sinner. God doesn't think about it and say, you know, I really shouldn't judge the world because I'm a sinner too, right? I should take the big, big beam out of my own eye. Um, God is not a sinner, and God is the judge of all the earth. That's essential to our gospel. If we don't share with people that God is going to judge the world, we are not preaching the gospel. Just going up to someone saying, Jesus loves you, that's a beautiful truth. I don't want us to not say that, okay? Don't not say that. Tell people like Jesus loves them. But if all you say is Jesus loves you and and he wants to forgive you, and, and you know that's also true, he wants to forgive you. But if you don't tell people about the justice of God and the judgment that's to come, then we are not preaching the gospel as the apostles were preaching it and as Jesus proclaimed it. Exodus chapter 34. If you keep your finger in Jude and turn to Exodus 34, one of the most important chapters here in the Old Testament, when God reveals his glory to Moses. Moses asked to see the glory of God and God says, I will pass by you. Put you in the the little cleft of the rock there. I'll cover you and I'll pass by and I will proclaim who I am to you, Moses. This is climactic. This is huge. Because Moses has seen God part the Red Sea. Moses has seen God destroy Egypt. And Moses after seeing all more miracles than any of us will probably ever see put, put together. More amazing miracles than, than all. Moses himself says, God, I don't really know who you are. You see, I know you exist, and I know you can destroy nations, and I know that you can part seas, and you have control over all nature, but I want to know you. I want to see your glory. I want to know your name. Because you don't know God if you just know he exists, and if you just know he can part seas. I want to know who you are, God. Who are you? Show me your glory. And God proclaims his name. Look at verse 6. And I want you to notice, this is really, God doesn't graduate from this, okay? This is not what God is like in the Old Testament, and then he's something new 
in the New Testament. This is the God of the New Testament. God has not changed. This is essentially who God is. This is not some outdated proclamation. Verse 6, The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord God. I want you to notice there's really nothing in here about just miraculous phenomena of him overturning uh, nature. We already know God's like that. But this is what God is essentially like. This is who God is. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. What a wonderful God God is. He keeps loving kindness for thousands, and he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And I think right there, the, the, the people who crept in to the church in Jude's day, and the modern theological trend today, wants to put a big period right there and rip the next part out. God is compassionate. God is gracious. God forgives. God is loving. God is kind. God is all those things. That's who God is. Hold on. He says something more. And it's amazing what he says in the light of what he's just said. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Wow. By no means. No way. Never. God forgives sin, yet he punishes the guilty. And he visits the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Period. That's who I am. I am this God. Take me or leave me. You can't pick and choose what part of me that you want to embrace. I am indeed loving and, ju- uh, loving and kind and forgiving and merciful. The cross doesn't change that. The uh, cross doesn't make me forgiving. I am forgiving. I am merciful. I am kind. As Christians, this is why God sent Christ to die for our sins, right? Christ didn't come to, Christ didn't sneak out of heaven to change God's, change God into a loving God. But God so loved the world that he sent his son to die on the cross. Because he loves us, he sent his son, but because he's just, he sent his son. And the cross reveals these two things about God, that God is love and that God is just. And it is because God is just that the cross reveals that he is love. If he wasn't just, the cross would not reveal the love of God. If anything, it would reveal the stupidity of God. If God was not just. If he doesn't need to uh, provide a sacrifice to forgive you, why would he send his son down there in the determinate counsel of God to die a horrible death on the cross for nothing? That was dumb. And Denny in his book always is hammering that if the death of Christ was not a sacrifice for sin, it is meaningless. It has no meaning. It was a dumb thing for God to do. But brothers and sisters, it is because God is just that the cross reveals that he is love. For if he did not love us, why would he provide a sacrifice? You see, the cross reveals, as we sang, that God is love and that God is just. This is precisely the issue that is going on in the book of Jude. 
These men are denying the justice of God and the justice of God's grace. One cannot be saved by hoping in counterfeit grace. If you um, are hoping that God is just going to forgive you because he's forgiving and you do not understand his justice and you have not taken refuge in the sacrificial death of Christ, you will not be saved no matter how much you're hoping in God letting you off or being gracious to you. It is only faith in Christ as he is in truth the faith that's once delivered, the faith about Christ as the, the Christ who is crucified, who reveals, us, who reveals to us the true God, only faith in Him will save you. And not only. So for the preservation of the Gospel and for the good of mankind, Jude writes his letter. And let's go back now to the book of Jude and let's look at verse 5. Jude begins now himself to fight for the faith and to equip the Christians for the battle. He proceeds now to remind the Christians that he's writing to. It's interesting in verse 5, he says this, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all. I don't know how your Bibles word that, but um, the New American Standard words it, I think, the, the most accurately. Now I want to remind you, even though you know all things once for all. Now, isn't that interesting that in Jude's mind, the Christians know all things once for all, that at one time you came to, to the knowledge of all things. How many of you feel like that? <laughs> at one time you came to the knowledge of all things. And while we can't go into this in, in great detail this morning, there is a sense in the Bible, and it's, it's found actually all over the New Testament, and in, in the Old Testament as well, that those who are born again have the mind of God. And those who are born again understand God's thoughts. And those who are born again, it says they know all things. That doesn't mean you know everything about botany, and it doesn't mean you know everything about the Bible, but the things, that, the things of God you know. The natural man doesn't know the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him. But anyone who's born again, who has received by the Spirit the revelation of the things of God, you know the things of God, and you knew it at one point, God revealed it to you. You can forget it. You might not even realize that happened. But if you are born again and are putting your faith in the sacrifice of Christ, there's a lot that you know. Right? There's a lot that's implicit in you being a Christian and believing in Christ. First of all, you know that the law requires perfection. You know that you're guilty. You know that God is just. You know that God sent His Son to save you because He loves you. You know that God is a God of righteous grace. Wow, that's a lot. You know a lot. In fact, you know the most important things of all. When Jude says this, I want to remind you, though you know all things once for all, he's expressing his confidence in the Spirit of God and in his, um, his uh, constituting the people, the Christians, to be God's people. Like in 1 John chapter 2, and even when John says, I write these things concerning those who seduce you, however, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. You don't need anyone to teach you. Because the anointing that abides in you, it teaches you all things. See, there's a, there's a confidence that the apostles have in Christians, even though they're writing to remind them. I know you're, you're loved by God. I know you're called. I know you're kept for Jesus. Nevertheless, I want to uh, remind you. Because how many of you know that even though we can know a lot of things, we need to be reminded of the things that we know. Reminding. Reminding is an essential 
um, work in the Bible. We've talked about this many, many times. Uh, when somebody, when a Christian reminds you of something that you already know, do not say, I already know that. That's not the point, right? He's reminding you. He's not trying to teach you. You, have, you already know all things. You don't need anyone to teach you. What you do is you need someone who reminds you. How many of you are guilty of saying, I know, I know, I know, I know that. Why are you saying that? Pride. You should say, thanks for reminding me. That's really encouraging. Thank you. Michael Green said, reminders are crucial for historical religion. What does Jude remind them of here in the next three verses? Jude proceeds to remind them of three historical examples of the wrath of God. Three historical examples of the wrath of God. First, he reminds them of Israel. He says, I want you to remember that after God uh, brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, he, almost, he killed almost all of them. Remember that. And the angels that he created to sing his praises, he's put them in chains of darkness uh, reserved for judgment of the great day. And you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? He went there, right? He visited to see the place. And he found it to be wicked. And he rained fire and brimstone down upon them. And they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Just, eternal fire. Just want to remind you of that, guys. want to remind you of the wrath of God. Now, it's commonly thought here that Jude is warning them against apostasy. And you'll notice in, in at least verse 6 and 7, they're almost... There almost sounds to be a theme of the angels left their proper abode and the Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Sodomites left the proper use of women. And so some, it's commonly thought that this is a... Um, a te- what Jude is, is saying to the Christians here is that uh, uh, be warned if you apostatize, if you leave the truth, you're going to be destroyed. This is the point that it is thought that he's bringing these things up. And he's warning them about apostates who have... Uh, these apostates. But the problem is is that the men that crept in were not apostates at all. They crept in. They did not start in and leave. They're, they're false Christians who came in. So he's not warning them that these guys are going to be destroyed because they've left the truth. That's not why Jude is bringing this up. Nor is he warning the Christians saying, if you guys follow these guys, you're going to be destroyed because apostates are going to be destroyed. That may be true. If you follow them, you'll be destroyed. But Jude is not warning against apostasy in these three verses. He's contrasting the belief of the false Christians with the truth. And in verse 8, he uses the word yet. Some Bible translations don't put the word yet in verse 8, but it it is most certainly supposed to be there. It's in the Greek. So in verse 8, think of it starting with the word yet. So even though there's these three historical examples of the wrath of God, yet these guys are dreamers. Yet these guys uh, proceed in their dreaming ways even though it is shown in history that God is a God of wrath. Jude is contending for the faith, refuting lies by reminding them of the truth. In the Greek, 
in uh, Jude, in verse 5, he said, the Lord saved the people out of Egypt. That's one thing that he did. Now, in the, in the word in the New American Standard is, is he subsequently destroyed them. In the Greek, it's in the second place he destroyed them. Yeah, he saved them. In the second place, he destroyed them. Just so you know, God didn't just save them. He also, secondly, destroyed them. There's a big day coming. It's interesting how the, uh, the Jude writes that. He didn't just say the day of the Lord in verse 6. He says the megas chimera, the big day. Kind of like, this is a, you know, it's, it's the big day, Johnny. It's, it's uh, the day that your team's going to play in the playoffs. Though there's a big day coming with God. And that day is the day he's going to judge angels and men. And then in verse 7, God actually has exhibited his justice through Sodom and Gomorrah. This is in the continuous present tense in the Greek. It doesn't say he exhibited in the past his justice. But they serve as a present continuous example of God's wrath against sinners. Just like the cross demonstrates presently, continuously, the love of God. Not in the past tense. He didn't demonstrate it once. It continues to demonstrate that God loves sinners, the cross. And Sodom and Gomorrah continue to demonstrate the wrath of God to this very day. Warren Wiersbe ties all these three examples together, saying this, Notice the grammatical connections in these verses, and you'll get the message. The angels, Israel, and Sodom and Gomorrah are examples of God's judgment. If you just read the passage, I want to remind you, the Lord took the people out of Egypt and destroyed them, and the angels who did not keep their domain, he's kept in chains of darkness for the judgment day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. All those things are like Sodom and Gomorrah, examples of the wrath of God. Jude is essentially in court providing his proof. Uh, Gentlemen of the jury, exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C. This is the case from history. God is a God of wrath. He is known by the judgment that he executes. Psalm 9.16 Yet, verse 8, Despite these proofs, these men persist in their error, ignoring the wrath of God. Jude tells us that these false teachers have something else in common with everyone that went before in his examples. They also, by dreaming, is what he says, that the the problem in all these examples was dreaming And so also, the false teachers are dreamers. Now what it means to be a dreamer is that you're living in a world that's not real. You're not believing in solid truth. You're believing in something that is a phantom, something that isn't even real, and it really just comes from your own brain. That's what a dream is. They're living in unreality and sentimentality, and like the guys before, he's not saying that the false teachers are sodomites like the guys before. They're not, saying, they're not saying they do all the same sins as the guys before, but they are dreamers like the guys before, living in unreality. And it's because of their dreams 
that they do the following three things. And these three things are related. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they revile angelic majesties. Now I'd like to point out that these three things that the false teachers do because they dream and because they don't believe the truth. These things are related and they're related to them turning the grace of God into the eselgeia of God. And then we'll just look briefly at these three things. First thing they do is they defile the flesh. Or you could say they defile the body. Now the problem here is that we make assumptions and we interpret this in a literal way. And certainly it's, it's possible to interpret it in a little literal way. Jude says they defile the body. Well, that could mean that they dirty themselves. You know, the, the, the Bible says that uh, if you dirty your feet, you've defiled your feet. If you uh, commit lewd acts, you've defiled your body. You've used it for an unclean purpose. And so we could assume that, well, this is what these guys are doing. They're defiling their bodies. They're, they're, they're literally uh, dirtying themselves physically. But it could also be understood figuratively. And many times in the Bible, it talks about defiling your body in a figurative sense. You remember in James chapter 3, verse 6, James says that the tongue is a fire. And it... it uh, let me see if I can... Um, I'll just read it here. Lest I butcher the verse. <clears throat> tongue is a fire, sets on fire the course of nature... Jude 3, verse 6. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. So here it's in a figurative sense that your tongue defiles your whole body. Now we're not cats, right? We don't lick ourselves. But Jude is saying by, by what you say, essentially what he's saying here is by what you say, you defile your entire self. You defile your, your entire self. And the, and the Bible sees you as a holistic person. Body, soul, spirit. You're all there. And you're, what you say defiles your body. And another verse, Isaiah 64, verse 6. You'll remember this one. Where, where Isaiah says, All of us are an, are an unclean, are as an unclean thing. Right? For all of us, have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy, a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And here he's talking figuratively as well, because this would apply to someone who takes a bath like four or five times a day. This would apply to a Pharisee who's not committing sodomy, who's not uh, committing adultery, who's not pursuing a filthy lifestyle in his own mind. All of us, in the eyes of God, are defiled. We're dirty. Body, soul, spirit, even if you've never committed what you think is an unclean physical action in your life. But turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I believe this is um, the explanation. Jude gives us a very simple statement. They defile the flesh, or they defile the body. He assumes that we know what that means, but I think that we're going to need to go somewhere else to understand that more fully. They have the same mind, obviously, the apostles do. 
But look at uh, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And we're going to read to verse 1 of chapter 7. I'd like to read chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 1 first, though. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, I don't know what your take on that verse is, but my experience with this verse is that most people take it out of context. They read verse 1 as an island. But let's go back now to verse 14 of chapter 6. And there's obviously a greater context in 2 Corinthians here. Um, Paul is defending his apostleship. He's defending his apostleship. But here's what he says in verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light and darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. Now here's the interesting thing. If you don't touch the unclean thing, you will be my children. If you don't defile yourself, you, I will be your God. Now it's funny how, as Christians, who believe that becoming a child of God and becoming saved uh, is not through any works of our own, but it's through faith, right? I hope you believe that. If we don't, let's talk afterwards. Um, Obviously, touching the unclean thing here is speaking figuratively. And it's not saying, you'd better not dirty your body, you better not commit any sinful sexual acts, or else God will not be your God. But if you look in context, what he's, what he's drawing a, a parallel between is this. Righteousness and lawlessness, light and darkness, Christ and idols, faith and unbelief. Lawlessness, darkness, idols, unbelief. That's what is unclean. And you don't go to that. You don't touch that. You don't put your faith in anything other than Christ. You don't put your faith in lawlessness. You don't go to darkness. Because if you do, then you can't be God's. Reject that. Come to faith in Christ, righteousness, life, truth and I will receive you. So if we read it in this way, in this figurative way, which I believe it's meant to be taken, that defiling your flesh or defiling your body and your spirit is not something that is merely physical, but it's something that these false teachers are doing by their lies and by their unbelief and by their uh, irreverence towards God. By turning the grace of God into asalgea, they are defiling themselves. Let's go back to Jude. Look at the next thing he says that they do. They reject authority and they revile angelic majesties. And I'm going to put these things together. 
This defiles them. This is a defiling thing. They reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Now, this is really what is going on in the letter of Jude. And Jude focuses on this. We often read this over quickly. This doesn't mean a lot to us. I'd like this morning, hopefully, for that to change. Now, when you read the book of Jude, this next section here about reviling angelic majesties, you're going to realize this is really the, the focus. This is what they're doing. This is the problem. And it's critically important for this unpacks turning the grace of God into Eselge in verse 4. Now some people think that this is referring to earthly rulers. This is what Calvin thought. I think Luther thought this as well. Some of the early reformers thought that these guys just despised government at a human level. Now certainly that's wrong to do and we know that from the Bible. But the majority of scholarship today says that what these guys are doing is they're rejecting the authority of principalities and powers in heavenly places. And they're reviling them. And they believe that this is what Jude is talking about based upon the words in the Greek that are used that are not words that are used for uh, human authorities and also the context. And look at the verse that goes after it about Michael and, the, and, and Satan. And of course, the larger context of verse 4 turning the grace of God into Elselgeia. The principalities and powers in heavenly places, angels, even Satan himself, the unseen spiritual hierarchy and government that exists in this world that we often don't think about as, as Americans. Because the only thing that matters as Americans is the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> the Bible teaches us that there are angels, unseen angels, and there's a government, there's there's archangels. There's angels that are over nations. You can read about that in the book of Daniel. The Jews had a very developed view of angels by the first century, and they got it from the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean they speculated and they got errors as well. But they developed, they had an understanding of angels from the Bible. Angels are revealed as the servants of the will of God. God rules the world through angels. God gave the law through angels. It often says that God said, spoke to somebody, but what we also read is it's an angel that's speaking to them, and that's indistinguishable, right? And that God governs the earth through this host. Angels communicate with men. They uphold the earth. They steer nations. They deliver people. They execute judgment and there's a clear hierarchy. Not that any of those angels have any authority and power in and of themselves, for they are but created beings. But they've been given a, a position and an authority from God himself. They're like uh, delegates of God. And to reject angelic authority and revile them is the same as rejecting God's authority and reviling him. It would be like an ambassador coming from some country. And if we mistreat him, we're mistreating not just that individual, but the nation that he represents. This authority that they have is derived from God, even Satan's. Does Satan have some authority according to the Bible? What authority does he have? Do you remember? Prince of the power of the air. He, has, he does a lot of things. He, he, of course, has to go to God to get permission to do things, but he does a lot of things, doesn't he? And he does it based upon God's authority. Whatever authority they have is really just the authority of God. And in Hebrews, 
chapter 2, it tells us that Satan has the power or the authority of death. Satan is the accuser. And Satan bases his activity and Satan claims authority over people to kill them and to bring them into condemnation based upon the law of God. And that cannot be ignored. You can't just ignore Satan and say, get out of here, Satan. You have no authority. You have no power. You have no... Per- you, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which we can say that, but what sense is it? If Satan and his hosts accuse the brethren and say, this one is guilty and this one has broken the law and I want this one. I'm at this one. This one is mine, actually. Death wants to eat you. And Satan actually uh, invokes his right to a person through that law. How then can we be saved from death? Now we said, we sang in this song that you've called me out of death. Remember we sang that this morning in that song, Sweetly Broken? You've called me out of death. Now how does God do that? Does he just part the Red Seas and send hailstones down? How many, we were all under wrath, Right? We were all children of the devil. We were all destined to die. In fact, we were already in the throes of death. And how does God come along and say, come out of death, you. Come into life. Do you think God can just say, I don't care about Satan and the law. Come out of death, you. How does God call forth life out of death when death is not just a physical phenomenon? Death is is a legal phenomenon. Death is a moral phenomenon. Death, there's, a, there's Satan who has the power or authority of death and God respects that authority because it's his own authority that he's delegated to Satan. So how does he say, come out of death, you? And this is exactly what these false teachers are saying God does. He just comes down and he just pushes ethics and, league and law and morality aside and authority and powers and principles. Get out of the way, angels. I love these people and I'm just going to forgive them and give them life. What we read in the Bible is not that God comes down and just muscles the devil with his miraculous uh, physical arm. What God does is he sends a servant, someone who looks weak, Someone who doesn't raise a fist against his enemies. And this servant is given over to death on our behalf. And all of us like sheep have gone astray and the devil saying, great, they're mine and I get to slaughter all of them and you lose God. And it's actually based upon your law, God. I don't even have to circumvent you. I can just claim my own rights that you've given to me and I win. But the Lord lays upon him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. And it's through the death of Christ for our sins that we are delivered from the power of death and that God can call us out of death into life in a just 
and righteous way that confounds the devil and renders all of his accusations and all of his claims as useless or spoiled, as Paul says in Colossians. That at the cross, when he took the certificate of debt that was against us and that was Satan was using against us, he nailed it to his cross and he triumphed over principalities and powers and made a spectacle of them there. Awesome. Awesome. What an awesome God that we serve. He didn't just save us illegally. Because he wasn't saving us from someone outside of himself, was he? He was saving us from his own justice and his own wrath. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels' prostrates fall. Grace is the ultimate authority now. For Christ is seating, sitting far above all principalities and powers with a power that works toward us through his death and his resurrection. And grace is now the ultimate authority. Now we can come to Christ and be saved by his grace and we can confide in his grace, not because it's a counterfeit grace that rejects authority and reviles angelic majesties, because it is a grace that is righteous and powerful and has authority above all authorities. Verse 9 is a stunning example of this. And it shows the presumption of the false teachers in stark contrast with obviously one of the highest angelic authorities, Michael. He says, in contrast to these nimwits, not even Michael. Michael, the archangel. He's not a little angel just taking care of like some sands on a beach. This is Michael the angel that is over the nation of Israel, according to the book of Daniel. This is like God's top agent. Not even he brushed aside the devil's claim as ridiculous. Not even he said, get lost, you jerk. Because Michael even knew that Satan was an authority not to be ignored. The story of Michael and the Satan arguing about the body of Moses is not found in the Bible, but apparently it's found in a document called the Assumption of Moses, which we don't have in our possession today, but we actually have pieced it together based upon other people's writings about that writing, people that had the writing in their possession. It's lost now, but we can reconstruct it. It's based upon Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 5 and 6, when Moses died. And it's interesting that it's, it says that Moses died and God buried him. If you look carefully at Deuteronomy 34, verse 5 and 6. Moses died, God buried him. Nobody knows where Moses is. Nobody knows. Nobody knows the burial place of Moses. So this story arose. Jude considers it to be true. Not that the assumption of Moses, the document is inspired, but perhaps the story is true. And in the story, this is very interesting in light of what we're discussing because Michael is sent to bury Moses by God. So you can say God bury Moses, it's the same thing. But Michael is sent to bury Moses and the devil challenges Michael and claims Moses because Moses had been a murderer. That's how the story goes. And Satan says, he's mine. Moses is mine. He murdered, he murdered 
Remember back in Egypt when he killed that guy? And all the other bad things he did. Moses is mine. Wow, Satan wants to get Moses. Michael did not deny the claim. He didn't say, Moses didn't murder anybody. You're mistaken. He didn't try to trick him in court. Okay. Well, it wasn't really murder, you see. Uh, you know, Moses tripped into him and he dies. Uh, he didn't try to trick him in court. Nor did he say, nobody cares about you, Satan, and just slapped him aside. He didn't bring against him a railing judgment. He didn't say, get lost. But what does he say? He appeals to the Lord for judgment. He appeals to the Lord to redeem and to save Moses from the power of death. That couldn't be done apart from Christ. But the point here is that Satan is not disrespected, but he's defeated by God himself. Not by ignoring the law, but by upholding it, upholding law and delivering sinners from it through Christ. A similar story is found in Zechariah chapter 3. Probably the assumption of Moses uh, was, was mixing these stories together where Joshua is standing before God and Satan is there accusing Joshua and saying, this man's guilty and says Joshua's dressed in filthy, defiling clothes before God. Totally guilty, totally sinful, without any cleanliness. And Satan is saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, here he is, guilty, he's mine. Guilty, guilty. And Satan knows he's got a true case. Satan's not lying about that. He's guilty. And there it also says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who chose Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And then God says, get these filthy clothes off of him and come put on new spotless white garments. Keith mentioned last night that that was a picture of salvation and it in fact is. In the face of Satan's accusations against us on account of our sins, the Lord is able to rebuke him. Not ourselves, not angels. The Lord doesn't set Satan aside, but the Lord rebukes his claim and says, no, you don't have a claim on this one. And he takes all of his, you, you think he's guilty, but he's not. He takes all the sin, sins away and covers him in perfection. And that is salvation. And that is the work of Christ, because all of us stand guilty before the judgment of God. Satan knows this. Satan accuses us. He's the accuser of God's people. And it's not by any works of our own, but it's through the death of Christ that our defilement is lifted and that we are purified and made clean before God. And it's on that basis that Satan is rebuked. The angels take angels seriously for they take God's government seriously and God takes himself seriously too. It's interesting that the name Michael in the Hebrew means who is like God and what a great name in the light of all this. Shall we not just reflect on that for a moment and just ask ourselves who is like God? who is compassionate and merciful and loving and forgiving and yet will not clear the guilty. Who is like God who is both just 
and wrathful and determined to avenge sin and yet is merciful and loving towards sinners and makes a way to save sinners from his own self. Who is like God indeed? I can't think of anyone who is as just as God and who is as loving as God, as righteous, as holy, and yet as beautiful and compassionate and merciful as God. What a name. Who upholds justice and yet has forgiven me. Who delivers us through the cross. You see, the gospel and the death of Christ is it really all about this question, who is like God? It's really all about the knowledge of God. And what we think about grace will show us what we think about God. And if you have a counterfeit grace, then you have a counterfeit God. So in verse 10, these men revile the things which they do not understand. In fact, in the Greek, it literally is, they revile as much as they don't understand. To the proportion that they don't understand is to the proportion that they revile. And that's seen today. You talk to people about the things of God and it's the things that they don't understand that they're the quickest to say, God is stupid, God is barbaric, God is dumb, why would he be just, why would he require sacrifice, why? You don't understand. And so you're reviling what you don't know. What they do hold to is what they know naturally, which is what the Greek is. My translation says they know by instinct, but it would be better to translate natural. It's just what they know naturally. What they know as a human being, what they know from human wisdom based upon their own human experience and their own wisdom and their own thoughts and their own ideas, what they know naturally is what they hold to because the truth is above their wisdom. It's offensive to their wisdom. And brothers and sisters, if what you believe is not unnatural, if what you believe is not above the wisdom of man, if it doesn't offend the wisdom of man, then beware that you're not really believing the gospel because God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. He is truth. We are liars. He is reasonable. We are unreasonable. He is just. We are unjust. He is loving. We think we know what love is and we don't. We suppress truth and we are stupid. God calls us to reason with Him and our sins that are uh, like crimson can be made whiter than snow. Just reason with me, God says. Just stop thinking you know everything and just listen. Yours, your, your sins are like scarlet. It's worse than you think. They can be as white as snow. That's even against what you think could happen. I am just. Admit your sin. You can be forgiven. I have made the way. If you don't reason, then you will be destroyed. If you continue on in your error and your foolishness, Jude literally says they're like unreasoning animals. They're not thinking. And when you don't think, and when you don't listen to God, you're no different than an animal that doesn't think. And you will perish. So Jude is a call to arms against this folly. It is a call to defend the faith that has been once for all entrusted to the saints. It is a letter that reminds us of the truth of who God is. God is as he is revealed through Jesus Christ 
the God of justice and wrath and love. If we ignore or revile these truths, we are denying Christ and embracing a false Christ and a counterfeit grace. This is happening today. It's subtle. People don't deny Christ out loud. Uh, Many people who profess to be Christians don't deny Christ overtly, but they are denying him by taking the same path of folly and counterfeit grace. It's even worse today than it is in Jude's day, so we have a lot of contending to do, brothers and sisters. For the preservation of the gospel and for the good of mankind, let us do as Jude is telling us to do and fight the good fight of faith. Let us in love hold forth the indispensable cross of Christ and show and proclaim to the world the glory of our God, the God of justice and the God of love as he is continuously and presently exhibited in the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we um, are continually amazed by you. Thank you that we know you. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us by your Spirit. We who are true believers and we who are born again, thank you that you showed us the painful truth of your justice and your righteousness and wrath. Thank you that you showed us the beautiful healing and saving truth of your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your Son who came to show us who you are. And Lord, we do say, who is like you? There is none like you. Keep us from evil and all false idols, all false images of who you are, Lord, no matter how good they may sound, no matter how much truth is mixed in. May we all be um, alert to those lies that are around us. May we hold to the revelation of who you are through the cross of your Son. Thank you for being all of our hope and our peace. Thank you for your word that instructs us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.